Whoever was the first to say, "'Tis better to give than to receive," obviously never was up for an Oscar. Now they're wonderful. They all have their Oscars. But are they happy? Hello, and welcome back to the Snub Club Podcast. We talk about the movies with the most Oscar noms and no wins whatsoever. I am your host, Danny Vincent, who, unlike Billy Holiday, forgot the character name, I was going to say Diana Ross, uh, unlike Billy Holiday, cannot talk or sing the blues. Hello. I'm Sarah, and I may be a lady, but I'm also not singing the blues. Hello, and I'm Caleb. Are you an umbrella? I should have done a blue umbrella joke. That's on my mind. And uh, that would be a deep cut for the uh, the followers of the Danny podcast lore. Yeah, pretty deep cut, especially because this episode's coming out like a month after it. So at the 45th Academy Awards, there was a movie with 10 nominations called Cabaret. It won eight of them. It won Best Director for Bob Fosse, Best Actress for Liza Minnelli, Best Supporting Actor for Joel Grey, Best Adapted Score, Best Sound, Best Art Direction, Best Cinematography, Best Film Editing. Then with 10 nominations was a little movie known as The Godfather. If you guys ever seen it, you ever heard of The Godfather? No. Nope. Wow. Great. Such, 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 such. Uh, it won three Oscars. It won Best Picture. It won Best Actor for Marlon Brando, who famously did not accept. And ergo, by me acknowledging that now, means I never have to mention up during ceremony talk. It also won Best Adapted Screenplay. Also, there's a movie with nine nominations called The Poseidon Adventure. But if we really think about it, it's eight nominations. So I have to put the disclaimer now when it's a special achievement award. So it only had eight nominations and it won one, which was Best Original Song for the Morning After. It also won a special achievement award for visual effects. And there was a film with five nominations, no wins. It was called Lady, Sing the Blues. So what was Lady, Sing the Blues? nominated for it's not lady sing the blues it's lady sings the blues first of all um it was nominated for best actress for diana ross she lost to liza minnelli for cabaret best original screenplay for chris clark who's on to pass and terrence mccloy uh they all lost to jeremy larner for the candidate Best Art Direction for Carl Anderson and Reg Allen. They lost to Hans Bergen Kabach. Rolf. <laughs> Some German people for Cabaret. Uh, Anderson was nominated, was also nominated for The Last Angry Man in 1960. Best Costume Design for Ray Agian, Norma Koch, and Bob Mackie. They lost to Anthony Powell for Travels with My Aunt. Agian was nominated two more times. Koch was also nominated for Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte and won one for Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. And Mackie was nominated two more times. And Best Adapted Score for Gil Askey. He lost to Ralph Burns for Cabaret. All right. 
Should I give ceremony info or do you have historic context, Mr. Caleb? I'll swing in with a little bit of historic context here. There's not a ton because this is, it's not faithful biopic. They, it makes a fair amount of changes, but broad strike strokes of Billy Holiday's life are more or less kept intact. I think the things to kind of focus on here is that, um, one, she was a lot more influential than the movie kind of lays out. She worked with a lot of um, very important jazz musicians, musicians like Count Bassey and Artie Shaw, Benny Goodman. Um, and that she also, her struggles with, uh, with narcotics was definitely heightened by her celebrity and uh, focused on very much by the um, FBI at the time, kind of turning her into kind of a scapegoat for they're kind of the prototype for what would become the war on drugs. So there's a lot of interesting stuff in Billie Holiday's life that uh, I'm sure we'll, we'll expand upon as we talk about the movie. All right. So the 40th Academy Awards were, pla- were plagued, much like my vocal cords, with some controversy. Yes, that's right. I've been, I have controversial-itis. Anyway. Um, this is because initially on February 12, 1973, when they announced the Oscar nominations, The Godfather got 11 nominations. However, they kicked one back because people were debating whether or not Nino Rota's score was eligible. So the music branch did a revote because the love theme, The Godfather, was also used in a Italian movie, Fortunella, which Rota had also scored. Um, but anyway, they're like, this is enough to disqualify it on its own, but we will put The Godfather up against the other five films that were on the shortlist and revote to see if it still gets its nomination. And in doing so, Sleuth um, got nominated instead, and The Godfather's score nom got kicked out. Also, interestingly enough, um, Best Original Song was not originally announced in February along with the other movies because... But it was later reported the Academy was considering whether or not Curtis Mayfield's song Freddy's Dead from Superfly should be eligible. However, it was ruled ineligible because the song was released as a single of lyrics, but in the film it's just an instrumental. They don't even play the lyrics during the credits. So the governor of the Academy at the time, John Green, who you know went on to write The Fault in Our Stars, uh, said times have changed. The old days, Hollywood made 30 or 40 musicals a year, plenty of songs to choose from. But now there aren't any musicals, and all the eligible songs are themes. And if the theme is going to be eligible, both the lyric and the music have to be on the soundtrack. Um, Cabaret holds the record for the most wins without Best Picture. Eight. The Poseidon Adventure is tied with They Shoot Horses, Don't They? and Close Encounters of the Third Kind for the most nominations for a movie not nominated for Best Picture. Limelight is the only time Charlie Chaplin ever won a competitive Oscar because he only ever won honorary awards. Um, which is interesting because Limelight was made in uh, 1952, but it did not screen in L.A. until 1972, which made it eligible for this Oscars. This is the first time ever two African-American women received nominations for Best Actress, so in its own little way, it is the opposite of the Academy Awards this past year. This is uh, the first year, and I think this is funny that this is labeled the first year because that implies they kept doing this forever. And they definitely don't do this anymore. Or at the end of the show, they brought out everyone. 
to uh, on stage, she would want to be like, congratulations, let's take a picture. Uh, <laughs> I also think this is funny because you'd think they would mention like, you know, all the winners were brought on stage except one. But, you know, I guess the multiple paragraphs on Marlon Brando on the Wikipedia page cover that. Oh, by the way, this this uh, ceremony was hosted by the uh, the person I the people I would want in a remake of Bob and Carol, Ted and Alice, which are Carol Burnett, Michael Caine, Charlton Heston and Rock Hudson. Um, I think that'd be a very good foursome. Well, there's one that I would definitely want cut out of there, but <laughs> well, sure. But also, I think that one's the one that you've said is like the most attractive at this time, anyway. So, yeah, um, <laughs> I don't disagree with that uh, because I said it. Anyway, um, I do have one more piece of historical context that just uh, occurred to me uh, because this isn't something that we'll be able to talk about, but it was an important thing talking or going on in Hollywood that I wanted to talk about. We've talked a lot about new Hollywood. I want to also uh, highlight one of the other film movements going on at the time. Black exploitation would just be getting started. Um, Cotton Takes uh, Harlem would have come out in 1970, which was uh, directed by Ozzie Davis. Um, and both Sweet Sweet Back and uh, Shaft would have also come out by this point. And those are kind of the three movies that formed uh, the basis of that film movement. If you don't know much about it, you should look up um, hey. Black yeah, what? I was going to say, keep talking, but then I have a, I have a correction for you, even though I didn't take a black exploitation class. Uh, neither did I, because it wasn't offered anymore. Oh, oops, I always um, forget that. I always just assume you did, because I know I, other people I got did. the mini one in, uh, in African-American images. Uh, Dr. Lawrence was able to compress it a little bit. Um, but no, it's uh, the black exploitation movement was... Um, a very interesting time that got both white and black directors behind the camera to tell kind of these um, stories that exploited kind of ideas about, uh, about black life, especially black urban life. However, you do get some real gems in there. Shaft is an extremely fun film. Sweet, sweet backs, badass song for um, some, you know, some challenging content is, uh, was very revolutionary for the time and is one of the most politically interesting films I've ever seen. So I definitely uh, recommend y'all checking it out. This isn't uh, a correction, because I realized as you kept talking that you were referring to Lady Sings the Blues as a part of this movement, which I didn't actually think about. I just thought you were bringing it up because I mentioned about uh, Superfly's song being uh, disqualified. But the reason I was going to mention that was um, the previous year, of course, the winner of Best Original Song, which is probably one of the more famous Best Original Song winners in the 70s, was Shaft, like the theme from Shaft. So... That's why I was going to say that was the previous year and there would have been mentioned if Mary Queen of Scots had a song, you know? Yeah. Which hallmark of the movement was the great soundtracks made by people like Isaac Hayes, James Brown. Um, Lady Sings the Blues is not a black exploitation film. It is clearly a very mainstream Hollywood film. However, the rise of black exploitation would bring um, certain opportunities and uh, would show that there is a market for uh, appealing to a black audience. And I think you could probably see some of the same strands going with Lady Sings the Blues, although that's obviously propped up by it being a biopic of a very famous American musician. All right. 
So ladies, why are you not mentioning the big thing that happened during the ceremony? Is it forbidden? What the thing I kept saying? Oh, why are you mentioning thing happened and I just moved past it? I don't know. I feel like this is like the most talked about Oscar incident ever, and I don't really see what what I have to add to it. You know. The only thing I have to add to it is I think it's weird that Wikipedia takes a big deal out of, um, well, I mean, I guess it is a big deal. I don't know. I don't know the whole thing. That's why I didn't even want to mention it. Wiki makes a big deal out of how later she misrepresented her ancestry throughout her life. And I was like, I don't know enough about this to say something about this. So that's also mm, why I was avoiding There's pretty damning the evidence about Wikipedia. it. What? There's pretty damning evidence about okay. it. But But also, well, what do I have to say about it? What can I bring to this as a white man? Well, we always talk about the ceremony, and it was a big thing that happened in the Oscars. Uh, I will say this. Charlton Heston was late to the Oscars because he had a flat tire. So Clint Eastwood uh, had to read written dialogue that were all jokes about the Ten Commandments, which had Eastwood say, come on, man, flip the card. This isn't my bag. No one That's talked so about the funny. No one ever talked. Everyone, everyone talked about Marlon Brando. No one talked about Clint Eastwood having to riff. But they do talk about. Didn't isn't this actually the thing about the? I guess I shouldn't mention Clint Eastwood because I know Clint Eastwood is the one who like made the really gross joke after she left, right? If I remember right. Yeah. So. Yeah. That's not mentioned on the Wikipedia page. But. Anyway, Lady Sings the Blues. What did you guys think? It's a movie that I watched. It was okay. I wasn't, it felt kind of dated. It felt like, I have one hot take about it, but I'll keep that close to the chest. But it it was kind of just a dated biopic. I feel like I did read up about her afterwards. I feel like there's a lot that's not in the movie. Uh, particularly her dog, Mister. I would have liked to have seen him. Uh, Could have won the palm dog. That is true. I think the big thing, and we'll kind of talk about it, is Billy D. Williams's character is kind of misrepresented in the movie, which is unfortunate. But it was okay. Isn't he? Isn't he a jerk in real life? Uh, yeah, he was abusive, and she yeah. had zero dollars to her name by the time she died because he took all of her money so i've seen the lee daniels version of this movie he is a jerk in that one but i would say both movies are on the same level of quality to me where that i just do not like the musical biopic on essentially any level with the exception of like rocket man so me sitting through this i was kind of like oh no this is exactly as bad as I thought it'd be. And then I just was bored the whole time. And I thought it was terrible. And in a weird way, it was kind of reassuring knowing that this has always been the issue with this genre in Hollywood. That no matter what you had in the 70s, it was still going to be like a very lame movie. But, yeah. yeah it... Sorry, you done No, me? I was like, but yeah. That's all. That's, that was like, I was closing. Yes. <laughs> okay. No, I find this interesting because a couple weeks ago, um, I watched I Want to Dance with Someone uh, with my girlfriend because she's a big Whitney Houston fan. And um, it's just astounding how much shared DNA 
this has with that. And then I'll also throw respect. I was going to say, I thought um, about the, a lot about respect during this movie. <laughs> yeah. And countless other music biopics. It, this is a, uh, a seminal text in a very, um, a genre with a lot of tropes that here's the thing. I want to get, I, I found parts of this movie to be interesting. Like all music biopics, you can see glimmers of the charisma or the talent that made um, these musicians worth, like worth understanding and worth looking into. But the expansiveness of music biopics, I think, is really its downfall, where it has to try to encapsulate a whole life in. Um, I think that what's more interesting is how kind of the dignity and respect that I want to dance with somebody and respect give to their women seems very absent here. And this almost seems to ratchet up the amount of suffering and um, dishevelment that they put Billie Holiday through. And part of that might be because she didn't have as glamorous of a life as those other two women. Um, But I want to, as we go on, I want to have a conversation about like, why these focus all so, so many of these music biopics focus on suffering instead of other forms of conflict. What, what version of respect did you see? I remember that being my biggest issue with the movies that the movie showed no respect to Reva Franklin. And then it ended just as she finally found it for herself. at like the last scene. I remember that was my big problem with that movie. I think that movie does it just as bad as this does. I was sorry. I remember respect being to me like the lowest of the low of these types of movies to me. And this movie is about the same level. If not, I think respect might even do it worse. I don't remember seeing a single moment of respect where I was like, this movie actually like has respect for Aretha Franklin, you know? Yeah. I mean, I don't want to, it's been a hot man since I've seen respect and I don't want to litigate that one, especially since you seem so, passionate about it and yeah, I, I really hated it sorry that's like one of the ones i left i was like ah this is everything i hate about movies like <laughs> no no i but i do think that there is a certain approach to that where it's kind of going in with an understanding that aretha franklin was top like top of soul music understand that and because of that the movie gives her a lot more agency and it kind of does almost uh almost let there be moments to realize that throughout. Um, I think all three of the movies I brought up are bad and I think they all have a problem with making their actresses suffer. I think that there is more dignity given to Aretha Franklin, and Whitney Houston though. This begins with like just turning like a really dehumanizing way of portraying Billie Holiday with her being thrown in prison and just fully in the middle of a crisis without any context in a way that paints the entire movie. And then from then on out, it's just one terrible thing happening to her after another. Uh, And there really is no moment where you have really any like joy or celebration of her talent in this. Um, And so that's why I think this is, this has a, it has all those problems ramped up more than those other two movies, but we can expand outward. We don't have to just focus on, on those, you know, that comparison. Have I have you seen the, the Lee Daniels one. No. 
No. It was pretty bad. Anyway. <laughs> Louis Sings the Blues is a movie where Diana Ross plays Billie Holiday in her feature film debut. Diana Ross was a singer for the Supremes. Did she act after this? Yes. Yeah. She was in The Wiz. And something called Mahogany. Which also starred Billy D. Williams. <laughs> As I presume her love interest. It also had Anthony Perkins in it. This sounds like a better movie already. A movie where I can like Billy D. Williams. It has 30% Rotten Tomatoes. Probably like it more. Well, who wants to lead? This is, not, this is a movie I hated. I don't lead on movies I hate. Okay, no, why do you hate it, though? I've already explained why I hate it. We hate it because it's everything about it is like, here is what happened in her life. There's no interiority to her. It is all misery porn, much like, you know, like the two we've mentioned already, but also like Bohemian Rhapsody. Like... What I well, I guess I haven't seen Ray. I shouldn't shit talk Ray without seeing it. But it's also kind of like walk the line where it's like we are being bored. I don't know. I just find it. I, here's the other thing too. So I mentioned this on our Mary Queen of Scots episode. Was was nice about Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice and Five Easy Pieces was that they were nice ninety minute movies and the Mary Queen of Scots was long. But it had the decency to be, like, fictionalized and dramatic. I found everything in this movie dull and turgid. And there was nothing ever going on that was interesting. Because, like a lot of these movies, like a lot of these biopics, um, Billie Holiday just exists to be in a scene where she's told, how about you do this performance for us? Oh, okay. Sounds good. And she does it, and then moves on. In a lot of ways, it reminded me of Star. Which is also, I guess, a musical biopic in its own way. But the music was better here, at least. Yeah, I think I'm more forgiving of <clears throat> music biopics than you are, Danny. But I do think that there is, when you look at the strength of the genre, I think it is usually when you focus a little bit more into like an individual moment of a character's or life. you do something like Rocket Man where it's cr- or Elvis where it's crazy. Yes, you could also do that. I think that has to complement the artist, though. I don't think you could do that with Billie Holiday. Well, let me tell you, Lee Daniels was not the person to do it anyway, because Lee Daniels shouldn't direct movies. I do think that there is some interesting framing and stuff here from, like, camera perspective. Like, there's, there's some interplay with... She works at a brothel in Harlem, and she's cleaning the stairs, and you walk up it to then go and be a prostitute but then she walks down and she descends into the jazz club i think there are some interesting ideas at the beginning here with like that type of framing of situations um and but that's all like pre-ramble to when she actually gets famous i think once it gets famous it does kind of turn into a parade of we have to explain this song we have to explain like this iconic moment even then like it skips over the most iconic moment or not skips over, but re changes up how she got to 
how she started performing Strange Fruit, which I think is which probably is, uh, the like the only real improvement the Lee Daniels remake has, where it's entirely focused. Not entirely focused, but like it's clear that that movie views that song as like the defining moment of her career, you know, type of thing. Where it's like they actually put a lot of effort into that. Which credits Lee Daniels, I suppose. Sarah, what do you think about it? I mean, I don't know. I didn't think it was boring. I just thought it wasn't very interesting to look at. That everything was kind of basic. I think. I don't know. I mean, I like when people think of Billie Holiday, like she's like they associate sadness. They associate like sorrow. Like she's this kind of figurehead for like pain. So I don't really know how they could not make it about these low moments in her life. I mean, I do think the beginning is like it exploits it, but I think. For the most part, I mean, I think it hits the beats it's supposed to. It doesn't show her dying, which is good. Um, I feel like as I was watching this, like I knew that Billie Holiday was famous, but I didn't really get that from the movie. Uh, She just didn't see She seemed like she was kind of a local gal. I feel like that's an issue, though, I get with like a lot of musical biopics. They'll either, like, be really bad at, like, emphasizing it when they're, like, old like this. You know, like, when it's, like, set in the past like this. Or I even think of, like, you know, how all these will be, like, you know, Freddie Mercury's here. And look, he's just in a little band right now. All right, let's do one song. And then it's cut, it, like, cuts to them already on a world tour. And it's, like, all right. So, like, there was no progression, right? This just happened. That's usually what happens. Or it's, like, what was the other one I mentioned? Um, not respect. What was the other one you mentioned? Walk Whitney Floyd. Houston. Yeah, I feel like that movie yeah, has a, does a really bad job of like showcasing when she got big. Like it just suddenly happens, and it's like, oh, okay. Which can happen for some people, especially in the modern pop landscape. Like you kind of can blow up overnight, but that's not the case for Billie Holiday. Like Billie Holiday, it was a slow, like grind working nightclubs and stuff to gain discovered and especially at the turning point of her career where she loses her cabaret license which they talk about here but you don't exactly feel the impact because like that what that basically cut out her entire market and so not being able to understand the market and then have such an important scene happen i think that kind of um that kind of kneecaps the back half of the movie you're not you understand that playing Carnegie Hall is big because all the characters are talking about it and just our conception of Carnegie Hall. I don't think you get how like vitally important it was for her career to continue. I feel like the movie, to me, doesn't do a great job of showing her place in the world. I think her walking into the club with a white owner... I know it's in Harlem, but it just kind of feels like it's hard to place her role in society. I mean, she can't travel. She can't go to certain places with her band. And they touch on that. They see the KKK. But like some I feel and she can't perform on the radio. But I feel like like something like Carnegie Hall is such a huge deal. And again, I think it just comes back to that we don't realize how big of a deal she is. 
Because to me, like a black woman performing at Carnegie Hall in the 40s seems like it would be this massive thing. And it just kind of feels like it falls into her lap a little bit. I think this movie does a very poor job showing its characters like in a world that actually reacts to them and them reacting to this world. They are instead like chess pieces that are moved around and posed into locations where it's like, this is this part of the biopic. This is that part of the biopic. And, you know, by the end where it's like, oh, Richard Pryor's giving her drugs. It's like, okay, like we've reached the point that like, and again, it might be one of those things where I always refer to like the Seinfeld principle of being like, oh, well, really, this is, you know, like this is 1972. These tropes don't really exist yet. But I posit that they do because I've seen A Star is Born in 1954, which is not a biopic, but hits a lot of those tropes anyways. And it's, you know, one of those things where, like a life is being shown. Or also we've seen Star. We've seen A Night to Remember. We've seen the trailer for Maestro. We, we know that these are things that happen and will always will be. It's just exhausting. Well, what would you propose they do? What do I propose how they would do? You, how would you tell Billie Holiday's story in a movie? Well, I wouldn't hire me to do it for one thing, because don't give it to me. Give it to, like, Barry Jenkins. Or, like, if not Barry Jenkins, give it to, like, the person who's directing The Color Purple. And, like, make it interesting. And find a way to do it. I don't know. I don't know enough about Billie Holiday to be like, here's how you make the right Billie Holiday movie. You know, that, that's really it, too. It's like, I don't know enough about her to do this. I think the answer is clearly, though, you don't... First off, you don't need the long introduction where she gets raped, like, for one thing. Like, we don't need that in the film. That can be a line of dialogue later on in the film that's, like, referring to her backstory. We don't need it to be two hours long hitting every single major moment. If anything, I think it's a more powerful story if we start with her on top of the world and then she falls down. If that makes sense. We don't need to see her making it to the top and also not only making it to the top, she makes it to the top where we have no context as to how, where the top is because this is 1972 and we're watching, what is this? The 1930s, 40s, 50s. I don't know. It, yeah. It spans those three decades. Yeah. So my point is, is like, as you said, cut it down to be like a sort of a certain area of her life. And probably you're going to want to do the downfall because that makes more sense. But I also posit that, you know, again, I'm the only one who's seen the new one. And that one also bored me to death. So what does what does the new one focus on? The new one? Fo- well, the new one is co- also here's the thing. I saw the new one during Oscar catch up in 2021. Ergo, it was one of like, you know, you, you hit uh, Oscar now. There's usually about like 15 I haven't seen. So you're just kind of like chugging them down, you know, kind of. You're like, I got to get for them all. Whatever. Also, it was a Hulu movie. Ergo, I was very having a hard time paying attention to it. The premise of it, according to Letterboxd and wherever you talk, is like they wanted to do something focused on how the government was going after her. I will tell you that having seen them, my memory of the movie is none of that. The only thing I remember in the movie is that Trevante Rhodes was a husband in it and he was a real creep in it, which is the one thing I can say confidently about that movie. It's like, well, that movie portrayed the husband as like an asshole because that's the only thing I really remember about the movie. But the thing is, is I remember I have a, I can, I can pull up my, I pulled up my letterbox review for myself earlier. Cause I was like, what did I think about this movie other than me not liking it? I will say I gave it two stars, which is actually on the high end for something. I can't give a biopic, a musical biopic, but 
Yeah, according to Letterboxd, the whole thing is focused on how the government targeted her. In, I'll just read the Letterboxd synopsis. 1940s, the government targeted Billie Holiday in a growing effort to radicalize the war on drugs, ultimately aiming to stop her singing her controversial ballad, Strange Fruit. Sorry, that's that's very complicated. Those two things are very tenuously linked by a journalist who has a long history of plagiarism and falsifying. Are you things. talking about the book? Um, are you talking about yes. Joanne Hari? Because that's what the book is based Yo, on. The movie's based off of. It's literally listed as based off chasing the dream, the first and last days of the war on drugs. Yeah, I'm not a smart. Yeah, I'm. I'm not. I'm not a historian, so I can't really validate or invalidate it but i know that that is uh, that's kind of a controversial like the government was definitely going after her for drugs and people definitely didn't like that she was singing strange fruit but the connection between those two things is disputed well what i will also say that my letterbox review first off i noticed this three two-year-old letterbox review has me say under the surface instead of under the service surface service yeah okay says under the service, like, thank you for your service, instead of under the surface, like surface pressure from a conta. So I should edit that after we record. I also will point out that my letterbox review for this other movie has me mentioning characters feel more like props than anything else. So I guess that was a problem in both these movies to me. And I think that is just actually a problem in general with the biopic, which is the reason I should watch Walk Hard. Because I feel like Walk Hard is probably going to make all these jokes on things that I agree with. Yeah, no, I think there are two ways I would do a Billy Holiday biopic. The movie, um, Lee Daniels movie apparently did one approach, which was Strange Fruit was very important at the time, and it was a bold political statement she made, focusing just in on the her figuring out, like her discovering that poem, her first performance of it, and the initial backlash. Don't have to get into any of the drug stuff. I just think that in and of itself would be an interesting uh, little like snapshot snapshot of her life. But I think even if you want to get a little bit more uh, fictional with it, just following her as a night, like on a night going through like the Harlem nightclub scene of the 30s, I think would be really interesting. Like and set it before she was famous. So like it's very much she's working and earning her spot. Um, and, it, you know, you don't have to get down these exact same things happened, but just like approximate what that environment would be and use her as kind of like an icon through that. I think that would be a really interesting way of portraying her. A lot of the times with these biopics, I want them to get kind of the idea and the aesthetic down a little bit more than the actual events. I was going to say, so I went to, not to this movie. I went to, I want to dance with somebody. And I went to the page I go to for the letterbox game. Okay, the similar films pages, just to see. And I sorted it by films I've seen. See, which of these do I like? And first off, I, I have to point out that Dear Evan Hansen is listed in the top, like, 50, which is really funny to me. But second, there are two here that I liked. One of them is Judy, which is a biopic that's centered on, like, two months of her life. And the other, which is more of a traditional biopic, is Selena. And I don't know if either of you have seen Selena, but I think Selena is actually a very good music biopic, although it might focus a bit too much on her father. But I also think Selena has a lot of agency in that movie where, of course, the ending of it is tragic, too. But like, I find that a very compelling movie in general. Also, just because that movie hits that sweet spot where and this is where I'm talking about this as a white guy 
where I think it does still tell a very specific story where I've heard Hispanic people talk to me about that movie and Latino, Latina people talk to me about that movie, like praise about like how culturally specific it is. But it also does a really good job laying out to me, a white guy who's never heard Selena before, why this person's music was important. And I think that's a very important balance that I don't think is ever really actually hit that well with like biopics that are about people of color, music biopics about people of color. Granted, I will again say, I have not seen Ray, which everyone says is like the best one. So, but I don't know. I think that's something Selena does that's really good about Selena. It's very much a, you don't know who this person, we're going to assume you don't know who this person is. So we're going to really like sell you on how big she became and how quick it was. That's kind of the point I'm getting at here is more that like that movie really nails like the rise to fame and the scope of it. Have you seen it? No, mm-hmm. I need to. It's very good. I saw it last year for, um, I believe it was Hispanic Heritage Month. They were playing at the AMC. That and Pan's Labyrinth, and I prioritized Selena. I haven't seen Pan's Labyrinth. I do wonder if Selena, and you can answer this obviously, Danny, um, does it focus? I don't know anything about Selena's life as a big. Selena got what? Sorry. She got murdered, right? Yeah, she got murdered that. before her first English language album like that she was working on. So the but idea be- of the movie is like the lost potential kind of where it's like this she was about to cross over and be huge type of thing. Internationally okay. huge rather than just huge among Spanish-speaking people. But- yeah. That gets into kind of what I was talking about, finding other forms of conflict besides suffering. And Sarah, you're right when you said that like, the sadness of Billie Holiday's life and everything that she went through is an important part of it that like, it makes sense to focus on it. But I do wonder, I wonder if it's a thing where it's like, it's a clear pattern over these. And like some of them, Selena makes sense. You would focus like leading up to her death and what we lost because of that. Selena though does cover the whole life though. Selena is actually also really focused on the father daughter relationship. Um, Because the father was like her... Sorry, go on. Yeah, we're not... Sorry. Well, yeah, no, I was just... There's this clear pattern of... We're going to focus on... And usually it's drug abuse, but it can be other things as well. Uh, Financial abuse can play a part in them. Um, Especially these... Yeah, these movies about um, women. Like, you know, Whitney Houston and Aretha Franklin both have, like, problems with how their uh, fathers are managing um, them and those biopics. I just wonder why it makes sense on an individual basis, but why as a pattern do you think Hollywood is so interested in like just making these very, yeah, these very influential people just solely focusing on their suffering. Well, isn't that kind of indicative of, I mean, you don't want to watch a a movie that's, where nothing happens, where everything is boring. I mean, isn't that kind of indicative of their careers? Isn't that, I mean, that's what makes them interesting and makes them artists is that they do suffer and they do have pain. Even like something like Elvis, which was fictionalized a bit, like we see that side of him that's suffering. Um, they're making an Amy Winehouse movie that is like exclusively about her suffering like stuff like that i just would like 
like, I guess my thing is, like, would we want to watch a Dolly Parton movie when we know that she just is a good, happy person? No. You may... No. Probably I mean, not. But I look at stuff like, also is, like Bo Rap, where it's like, that movie to me, again, I'm not like a queen scholar or anything, but from everything I hear, that movie like greatly emphasizes all the troubles that Freddie Mercury went through to. Like, well, here's the thing. That movie, is, that movie is fan fiction by the members of Queen because they're <laughs> jealous that they're not famous. <laughs> and it had to be PG-13. So... <laughs> What a world we live in where um, the Christopher Nolan um, Oppenheimer biopic is R, but the cool Freddie Mercury Queen movie has to be PG-13. <laughs> um, I don't know. I think I think there are just other, other sources of conflict that you can focus in on with any singer's life. Um, even if it is just market stuff. Like... I like I Walk the Line because I'm a huge Johnny Cash fan. I would like that movie a lot more if it didn't focus on Barbiturates and I, I, it should focus on his relationship with June Carter because that's an interesting thing. But even if it had just been about his strategic planning around, maybe this is me being a nerd, his strategic planning around the Folsom Prison album, if it had just been that, I think that would have been interesting enough. I think... all of the mini conflicts that come when you're creating something are enough to carry a movie. So like if the Aretha Franklin one had just been about all of the mini conflicts that came with the amazing grace, the filming of that and then the recording of that, we already had a good movie. We already have the documentary. Sorry. Yeah. But the documentary doesn't show the fact that she hated the documentary. Like there was a lot she hated about that process that could make for an interesting movie and then wouldn't have to focus on the same trope, like tropes. What I also think is really, I was going to go to Elvis for a second. A movie that, to me, I think I probably like the least of the three people here, but I still, I still generally, I'm like, I'm like positive, like vaguely positive to Elvis. You know what I mean? I'm not like overwhelmingly positive. But I think the best section of that movie is the section where Elvis is actually like, really driving the plot and that's when he's working on the the christmas special in a way where you know he's trying to sing that song that i'm blanking on the name of but like the end of that segment is him singing the big protest song that like gives you chills even if you don't if you're like me you know nothing like so good elvis is such a good movie dude (laughs) yeah i I mean again i kind of as i said earlier i kind of wished it was like it's definitely something i should revisit because i remember i told you guys i saw that and I got a headache in the middle of it, and I thought it was the movie's fault, but then I found the next day had COVID. So I was like, oh, I guess COVID just hit me strong in the middle of Elvis. But I don't know. But anyway, um, I think that that section of the movie is still the best part of it, though. I mean, just because the rest of the movie, I do think it's Tom Hanks that's kind of pushing that movie along, which I do enjoy him in it, but he's not, he's not why I'm there for an Elvis movie, right? I'm not there for a Colonel Parker movie. And again, Colonel Parker kind of hits on the thing you're saying where it's like all these things are about struggles with the management and the person. Also, I'd say I want to give, I think Selena also has that too. But the thing with Selena is it's all kind of baked in this regret of like the dad as a producer on it. And he's regretting how he behaved towards his daughter when his daughter was alive. And it's all very evident in the film itself too. So like, and that's all its own compelling thing. Um, 
But then I think about Rocket Man, where Rocket Man is just like the aesthetic is why I like it. It is everything about the drama of that movie is everything wrong with every one of these movies. But the difference is in Rocket Man, like the musical sequences are so well done. And Taron Edgerton is so charismatic that's like, all right, I'm down for this. Even when it has like the worst postscript ever put in a movie. And by worst, I mean the best, where it goes like, he's still addicted, dot, 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 to shopping. Come on, guys. You don't remember that part of... No, because I didn't see it, because I don't like Elton John. Well, when are you gonna come down? I don't I like Bill that. Murray either. I thought, you were gonna I thought that's not what I was like. I can't say that anymore. I was say about a different actor in that movie. To get back to, unless y'all have anything else to say on that, to get back to Lady Sings the Blues, what'd y'all think about Diana Ross? I think um, she's the only thing about this movie that's semi-memorable. So, hint, hint, nudge, nudge, maybe I'll talk about her more later on in the podcast. <laughs> I thought that she had a razzy-worthy performance. I thought she was terrible. I didn't think there was anything good in this movie performance-wise besides her and Billy D. And Billy D was just because I was like, Billy D. Williams is here. <laughs> that was really I, the way said. To me, she is kind of like Rami Malek in the sense that, like, when she sings, which obviously Rami Malek did not sing, but when he does the live aid scene, you're like, okay, like, this is pretty good. <laughs> I mean, that's really all you could say about Bobby being Rhapsody, but that scene, I thought he did a very good job. And I still, I mean, I think she sings, I think her singing is lovely, but I still don't feel that charisma from her when she sings. I think she's okay in any scene where she is sober. And then she is a very talented singer, obviously. Most of this movie, she's doped up and it's almost impossible like it's an illegible performance. It's almost impossible to get through. I hated so much of this movie just because I I was not vibing with what she was doing. See, I agree, but I also think at the beginning when she goes to the nightclub and she's like, "Hey man, hey man, let me let me perform, man." Like it's so bad. You guys like Billy D. Williams? Yeah. Yeah, isn't, he was good. Isn't the clapping in this like a meme? Or, like, isn't there, like, a thing in this that's, like, a gif of him? There should be. I feel like a lot of, like, the audience reactions might be. Because I feel like I've seen Billy D. Williams' gifts where he's in a suit. And it's got to be either this or Batman, I feel like. Oh, it is him. Billy D. Williams. With a cigar? What? I think that is from this movie. Billy D. clapping? We're, we're looking. We're looking. Yes, that is from this movie. Guys, the gif of Billy D. Williams clapping is from this movie. This movie has cultural relevance. I've never seen that gif before. <laughs> I've- Billy D. Williams is a person. I don't know anything about him in real life. So don't try to tie me to that. This is just solely going off of Hit the hyperdrive, Chewy. He is someone who deserved a much better career because he is just such an electric presence. And I really appreciate every time I get to see him play someone who's not Lando. I love Lando, but like every time I see him, I'm like, oh, cool. He did. He did get a chance to like actually act in something and not just be kind of like this side character. Even then here, he's just kind of like a side character, but you get to see a different side of him kind of brought out as 
the romantic lead, even though that is not historically accurate. How far do you make him in Dancing with the Stars? Oh, he had to withdraw in the third week because of a back injury. That's sad. Wow. See, he just deserves better. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like he'd be good on Dancing with the Stars. Um, I'm trying to see. Like, I feel like has he never had like a TV show? He was on an episode of uh, uh, Oh, and just like that. <laughs> well, in that case, he did get an Emmy nom for Brian's song, the TV movie. It's a movie. TV movie, yeah. I know. But I liked him in this just because it's Billy D. Williams. What about um the other, the last kind of big name, and this is Richard Pryor as Piano Man. Any thoughts on him? I thought he was okay. I do have a question for you guys. You should have cast that Billy scene Joel when her mom it. dies. Why was he so upset? I was. I watched that scene like four times. I mean, I think he gave a good performance, but I just didn't understand why he was like crying. I, I personally find it always. Scene. I find it bizarre when I see Richard Pryor in a role that isn't comedic. Also, I always feel like I think Richard Pryor died young, and he didn't really die young. He died in 05. It's not super young, you know? Yeah. Sorry, I always I think, think he died like in the 90s, and it's always like, no, nah, he died in 2005, which isn't too bad, you know? I mean, it is bad, but... I think... Yeah. yeah. I think he starts as a really interesting presence, and then kind of is, becomes whatever. I That scene you were talking about, Sarah, is so confusing. on Because it is. I think that is the height of... Diana Ross's dope, doped up performance and just once again, hard to like just read anything that's going on in that scene. Well, I think the scene where he dies is worse because oh, they're literally was... on the phone with her and she's like squeaking on the phone and they're like, what are you talking about? That one, that one becomes almost comedic just because of like how long it goes on. Like they, they knock on the door for what feels like 10 minutes. I just, I, I thought he, you know what? I didn't, I honestly didn't really recognize him because I only know him from Superman 4. Oh, I recognized him. But I thought he gave a good performance. I do. And I, you know what? Even though I have no idea what happened in that scene, I thought he gave a good performance in that scene. I could tell that Sarah. he was upset, but I'm questioning why he was upset. <laughs> Sarah, but your problem wasn't in Superman 4. Superman 5, Superman whatever. Superman 3. Superman the quest for peace. Oh, it was Man Superman 3. He was, I thought he was in quest for peace. No, he's no, in 3. He's in Superman 3. Oh. The director of this went on to do quest for peace. Okay. It's what it's most known for, more than this movie. And quest for peace is actually fun to watch, so... Is three on the watch? I've never seen three. No, I three didn't like is three at all. Three is terrible. Three is three is maybe the worst superhero movie I've ever seen. Big doubt. Big doubt from me. I bet you I'd like it more than like Batman Forever. No, I hate Batman Forever. <laughs> Batman Forever is bad. <laughs> I, it really is, rough. but like Superman. Real ones know Batman Forever is worse than Batman and Robin because Batman Forever. Like hints at being a good movie at points. Actually, that's not true. Batman, no. Batman and Robin has some funny jokes. Batman Forever thing, is like is, always they're trying so hard and it's more frustrating. At least Batman 
And Robin has like a tone, like at least yeah, there was exactly. something going for it. Like Batman Forever is so boring and unfun to watch. Yeah, and it's you can tell it's like Jim Carrey is trying, and it's like stop trying. And then Tom <laughs> Tommy Lee Jones is being annoyed that Jim Carrey is trying, <laughs> so Tommy Lee Jones starts trying to be Jim Carrey, and it's even worse. Oh gosh. No, I I I enjoy Batman and Robin on the ironic level. Um, that, and it's just like, I also think Uma Thurman and, uh, and Arnold Schwarzenegger are like understanding the assignment. (laughs) Guy who did Bane was great. Love him. Favorite. I saw, I saw a clip on Twitter this week from Harley Quinn, where I saw that the Bane character on that is still doing like, how can you help me out, Harley Quinn? And I was like, oh, that's funny. I like that people still are doing this. Um. <laughs> anyway, Superman three sucks. Uh, you know what else sucks? Lady sings the blues. I disagree. There is that scene that it's also a bad scene. It, but it could be a good scene. Is where Billy D. Williams is trying to like stop her from hitting up morphine or whatever. But the score is so loud and like bad. <laughs> And just like out of place that it really takes over and just kind of undercuts everything that he's trying to do. You know what I feel like? I really liked the scene where they went to the club for the first time and they were flirting because it felt really natural. I really like that scene. I feel like every other conversation they have, it feels like they're improvising and they don't know how to end the scene. Like, especially the one where he's trying to stop her from... Like doing the dope, like she's I like, definitely do get I gotta go to the bathroom, but he's like, all right, Billy go to the bathroom. Is getting, I get, I get the feeling a lot of times that Billy D. Williams is getting confused by Diana Ross's choices, but since she's <laughs> Diana Ross, you can't really argue against it because it's like this movie's being made because she agreed to this role, you know. So it's like he's just there. He's like, all right, <laughs> you know, and it's like it's what he's got to go along with. Uh, he must have enjoyed working with the director enough, though, because he was in the director's next movie. Oh, was he? What was it? Yeah. Did he it, caught the, like, the director went on to do Empire Strikes Back. No, it's a movie <laughs> called Hit, and it's like him and Richard Pryor comes back, too. Oh, it's like Billy D. Williams puts together a group of people who have all had like family members die of drug overdoses, and they all go to like kill the drug lord or whatever. It's such that a ridiculous like a fun movie. It does. I, I don't think it will be just based off of this, but I I do I would be interested in watching it. Uh yeah, it's only got negative reviews on uh the wiki page. Oh Cisco liked it. Cisco always liked the bad ones. Yeah, Cisco Cisco has some <laughs> rough picks. That's why we love it. It is cool to have a role that's originally written for Steve McQueen and be like, I'm giving it to Billy D. Williams. Yeah. Especially that one feels very much influenced by the rise of black exploitation stuff. Cause like that decision very much feels in line with that. He made a movie called the dependables. Yeah. They're you old. can really tell, you can really tell after got. Superman four that his career just ended. Oh dang. The I cast the of this movie has from, Margot Kidder in it. I was going to say, yeah, it's got Ansi Morcassel. So reception and analysis. What? How are there three paragraphs on the page for the dependables? Maybe it's a very cerebral film. 
Oh, apparently there's like a long book written about Sidney J. Fury. So maybe that's why. It's like this is the end of his uh, auteur theory. He also has a movie called My Five Wives with Rodney Dangerfield. Which supposed to exactly what you'd expect a Rodney Dangerfield film called My Five Wives would be. And also has Andrew Dice Clay in it. Is there any... I got two kind of questions to wrap us up. So is there anything else that we need to we need to talk about with Lady Sings the Blues. No, I will say I have nothing. I've had this just I've had this thought before. Actually, wait, I do have something to say, but go on, Sarah. You, you go on. I am saying I do have something. Where I I hate when biopics are nominated for original screenplay. I just but I, I pointed hate that. this out last week. I did point this out last week. Let's see if it's still called that. Because last week, yeah, yeah. So at this point in time, the category is at least titled Best Screenplay Based on Factual Material or Material Not Previous Produced or Published. So at this point in time, it is codified in the name that it's not necessarily original. I'm just saying. like That's true, but on its Wikipedia page, it says original screenplay. I know, that's annoying. I mean, and they, well, it's based on her autobiography, but not really. I just, to me, like, Bohemian Rhapsody and Green Book were nominated the same year. And I just feel like what was there's so to say? many based on my dad for Green Book. There are just so <laughs> many bad biopics, that, and they're always original screenplay. And I feel like to make a good biopic, you need to have some sort of source material. Like hey. you need to pull from that. It doesn't I mean, have to be so- accurate, but just something that you can pull from and point to and say, "This is where I got it from." I'm going to tell you this a quick story right now that's related to what you're saying. Which is, I went to the library the other day to check out actually this movie from the library's head on hold, and the person in front of me in line was having an issue because they're trying to copy check out a copy of Killers of the Flower Moon, and it wouldn't let them because there was like an eighty person hold list, and they were just trying to like steal the hold from someone else. But and there's that one, which is I don't know if that counts as a biopic or not. Really, I don't think it is. But what I was going to say is I looked up after. American Prometheus currently has 350 people on hold at the Chicago library system. What? Why? Caleb's shaking his head no at this. I think no, wanting no, to read about f- Oppenheimer after seeing the movie is a very viable thing for normal people to want to do. I say normal no, no, people I as think, in like not film nerds. No, Danny, stop. I've told you this before. You really shouldn't read my expressions because you always get wrong. No, that was just me being like, that's a lot of people. Oh, it wasn't okay, me yeah, trying yeah. to judge anyone. But no, my point is, is like, I know, Sarah, you're never going to watch Oppenheimer unless it somehow gets, like, no wins, which isn't going to happen. It's going to win, like, best original score or something. But, like, my point is, I agree. I was very actually pleasantly surprised when I saw Oppenheimer. It's, like, the second credit is, like, you know, it's, like, directed and written by Christopher Nolan, and then it's based on this book. It's, like, before anything else. And I was like, that's cool. And I, I generally do think movies are better off when they have something that's already... Again, like it's kind of like what you were saying, right? Is Selma based off a book? I feel like Selma might be based off a book, but like when movies, I feel like when movies are more like that biopic that's about like an incident, it's because it's based off a book. Obviously, Oppenheimer doesn't fall into that, but well, Selma, Selma wasn't nominated for any Academy Awards besides Best yeah. Song, oh, yeah, so I really true. can't say. Oh, okay. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. The thing where it won Best Visual Song, not like it was the best song, but because everyone's like, oof, we should have nominated for more. Oops. Guess we'll vote for it here. It just says it's based on the event. 
I had another comment to make, which was um earlier today I watched a movie on HBO Max called The Goodbye Man. No, sorry, the, not the, the Goodbye Man, I think it's a horror movie. The Goodbye Girl. Oh, that's came Bye out Bye in, Man. Yeah, yeah. Well, this movie came out in 1977. And the reason I bring it up is because we're in the 70s right now. And, you know, a couple weeks ago, I was, like, defending five easy pieces and Pop and Terrence Kevin Alice. And after two ones in a row of watching these period pieces, biopics, I'm back to being annoyed where it's like, why can't we watch a movie like The Goodbye Girl or, like, Whatever the apartment is in, you know, like I mean, like Billy Wilder's The Apartment in like the 70s. I get pretty tired with these period pieces because I know this decade's putting out a lot of great contemporary stuff. Because I watched a great contemporary movie this year, like today. Well, from 1977, but still 70s. Why can't they give this like a production design or something? I wish we had watched Sleuth. Didn't they? Or Travels with My Aunt. Sorry, I'm just looking at like the other potentials for this. Oh, I see. Get to watch. Oh, 1776 was nominated too. 17, Another another great piece of fiction that was based on a book. I was gonna say my favorite biopic, not music biopic, is Malcolm X. I think that movie is a masterpiece, and that yeah, very very heavily influenced by um, the autobiographies of Malcolm X. So. Um, it is a great movie. I think you're onto something, Sarah. That's true. Um, I I did like Elvis though, but maybe that doesn't. Maybe that's there, okay. But like, I feel Baz. like again, when you, you have when to you, give an exception when to Baz. you give Baz it, or alternatively, also when it's like the Rocket Man director, like thing, like I'm gonna make this just a dumb musical instead of like and while hitting the biopic notes, like you know, when you get someone in there who's like willing to make it like ridiculously stylish, you give I you think, get a little like forgiven. So like, yeah. Well, I think what it, it's well sorry. I think that what it comes down to me is it's just about ethics. I think especially with something like Green Book, it just wasn't ethical. There was a lot of things in it that were just not accurate that affected Ron Shirley's family. Um, so especially with like people that have family that's still living, like why are you not using some sort of source? I mean, but I'm sorry. This is sorry. You just remind me of though that thing where it's like Oppenheimer's descendants are complaining about something that was in Oppenheimer's autobiography that's in the movie. <laughs> like, which I just think is funny, but that's not what you're talking about. And I agree. Like, when there are, you know, whenever there are real people who come out and go like, well, what is this? Like, you know, what are you doing? You know, or even like all- even with Bohemian Rhapsody, where people were like, this isn't what happened. Like, this is not. And then it's just it is not a good look for the other the other members of Queen because they, you know. Basically, themselves. Yeah. My wrap up question, kind of, is: uh, Is there a musician, or we can broaden this scene figure? Since Danny, you don't like bio- music biopics, but is there someone you want to see a biopic that there isn't? Like, we don't even have to say there hasn't been one, but there hasn't been like one that's stuck around in the public consciousness. That's that's one of those questions where it's like on my other podcast when we have a guest when you give them the question at the beginning, so they have to think about it. Because now I'm like, ooh, who? My 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 gut goes to yes initially, but also it's because of the Oscars we're looking at. Is oh, Danny, you really should watch that Bob Fosse miniseries that you've been meaning to watch for years. Because um, I don't know if that's definitive or not. Because it's like I know it's weird to be like there isn't a definitive movie, but I think about like I always point to this mini series as like the gold standard for miniseries, which was um the only thing where I Murphy's ever been involved, with, which is good, which is um the uh oj 
miniseries that was on FX um, as like, why would you ever want a biopic of any of these people when this movie exists, this show exists? So I'm trying to think. Cause the thing is also is like, again, I'm, I'm going to mention, I'm probably the only person on here who really loves Oppenheimer, but I didn't the thing about Oppenheimer was it surprised me. I actually didn't think Christopher Nolan had it in him to make a movie like that. That was a biopic. Um, so that's the thing to me is like, it's really hard to say like what I would like, because the biopics I like, with the exception of obviously Spike Lee doing Malcolm X's inherently, like, of course, like that makes sense. But usually the biopics are like, are things that, that surprise me, like, uh, the director of Eddie the Eagle is doing an Elton John biopic. But oh, it's actually good. You know, that's that's the thing to me. It's like it re- really would be hard for me to say what I would want out of something. I do think I am always curious about um there are like biopics that almost happen that I'm always curious about. Like I'm always curious about like to bring up Chris Rowling and I'm always worried about wondering how his like um, Howard Hughes movie would have turned out. That just really fascinates me as being like, Oh, that would be cool to see how Jim Carrey played that role. But I don't know. Like, I mean the actual best biopic. Sorry. I just went on letterbox searched biopic and sorted it by my highest rated. And I realized like the best recent biopic in my mind is one that Sarah might agree with, and by Sarah might agree. With, I think Sarah would agree with, and that's a beautiful day in the neighborhood, which is kind of a biopic, kind of isn't. But like, I don't know. It's really. I would good. say I, it is. I would say it is, but it's not about Mister Rogers. Yeah, exactly. But it's such a great movie. I don't know because the thing about biopics also is like it's such it's such a large thing where it'd be like more like it'd be like. The one thing I can think of, and it's because I wrote it for that game I played on the internet before, and I also saw a play about it that I thought was interesting, is I would like the play I saw about Miss Joan Jet Black to be made into an actual movie because the play was so good, and I think it's fascinating. And it should be a, what I saw would have been great as a movie. So, and I think more people should know that story. She's a drag queen that ran for president in 1992. It does sound pretty rad. Yeah. It was written by um, the person who wrote Moonlight. Well, the play. So it's like, just get that person on, like, write it up as a screenplay, and let's see it. I think he wrote the screenplay, too, for Moonlight. No, that's what I meant. Yeah, he wrote the screenplay for Moonlight, and also for the um, High Flying Bird, which is an underrated Soderbergh movie, because that's on Netflix, so no one ever knows it exists. Well, let me rephrase. It's the Soderbergh movie on Netflix that people don't know it exists, because the other Soderbergh movie on Netflix has Meryl Streep and Brownface. So people are aware of that one because it's bad. But High Flying Bird is very good. The Miss Black for President of the Play I saw was very good too. Sarah, what about you? Is yours just Hamilton? No. <laughs> um, if I were to make a musical biopic. Why is Tar listed under the biopic page? Sorry. Because Lydia Tar, ever heard of her? She died recently. I, I don't know. Like, I'm just thinking like a very, like a traditional musical biopic, maybe like, like Karen Carpenter getting a real biopic, uh, Cass Elliot, like the Ronettes, Ronnie Spector, something like that. I have one, I'll tell you, I'll tell you off, off mic, but there's one that I want to make that's not a, it's not a singer. It's somebody else. I will say this also. I just went on Letterboxd and searched for my most recent, and I forgot one of my favorite recent biopics was Dolomite Is My Name, which is... Oh, yeah, that was good. 
which is a movie that it's more, I would like to see more biopics to try to capture the tone of its subject. If that makes sense. And not like something like the weird owl movie where it's not a biopic anymore, but like something yeah. where like Dolomite is my name still like gets to the heart of like why that guy was important and like why, like there's points in that movie where it's really emotional, but then also it's still just a very funny movie and a very joyous movie to watch. Which I think I haven't seen Dolomite is my name, but I think that fits beautiful day in the neighborhood as well. Beautiful in the neighborhood makes me cry more though. Which is okay. That's true. It's, yeah. um, also, I would say like, like Marsha Johnson, just anybody oh, yeah. who's in that sort of. I mean, she oh. there was that one movie that, that was uh, about the white people at Stonewall, but like just anybody who's kind of in that movement, just more oh, people. Actually, hold up! I have a better answer for your question. Sorry, but. There was a person I was fascinated with in high school, like as a freshman, and they made a biopic off it, and the biopic was bad. I would like Florence Foster Jenkins to get a different biopic, a better one. That one was I bad. Did, I, <laughs> well, I did see that in the list of music biopics I was looking at earlier. Unfortunately, I don't think they ever will. <laughs> I know. I also think we should take the script of the founder and give it to a director that actually knows how to direct something like that. Because I think The Founder is a three out of five movie that could easily be a four out of five or four and a half out of five movie if it had someone with vision behind it. Rather than just Michael Keaton trying put, to carry the whole thing. They put Grimace in it. <laughs> Grimace Shake. <laughs> I think The Founder too about the Grimace Shake. Um, also, there's one of these I'm looking at where I'm like, I really like this biopic, but I won't say it because I know the director is rightfully canceled. The director should be in jail. But it was a good biopic. Can I say? Okay. Are you excited for the biopic coming out soon about um, Maria Callas? Uh, it's Pablo, Pablo Rain. It's going to complete his trilogy of Jackie oh, and Spencer. Then yes. Yeah. It's a Greek I soprano with the most renowned opera singer of the 20th century. Yeah. I love Jackie. Spencer, I've only seen one, so I can't say I love it, but it was also good. So I'm down. We should bring up the guy who plays JFK. We should give that guy a movie. We should get where he the, um, goes on a road trip with Charles Manson. The to answer my own question, uh, there's a proto punk band from Detroit, Michigan called Death that only had one album because they didn't want to change their name to something that record producers would approve of. So they just kind of floundered, but they were extremely influential and I think uh, embodied a lot of the uh, punk ethos. Um, I think you're right. Uh, Sarah Marshby Johnson would be amazing along that those lines. Uh, Sylvia Riviera, who was also a, um, a trans rights uh, activist uh, and friends with Marsh P. Johnson, um, would also have been, would also make a very, uh, a very good movie. And then uh, Bass Reeves, who is a uh, black U.S. Marshal. Uh, actually, Delroy Lindo plays him in The Harder They Fall. But I think I saw some buzz about him getting a biopic, and I'd be super, super excited for him because he both had an interesting life and then had a very interesting mythology built around him. So I also would like to say there's whatever person I've always tried to crack this story on a biopic on, and that's Iweo Takamoto, who is the person who created Scooby-Doo and Astro, and he grew up in um, internment camps. Not he didn't grow up there, but, you know, he lived in internment camps 
when he was like 15 or 16. And I just find it fascinating how, you know, he had to get through obviously a lot of anti-Japanese discrimination afterwards. And he, he meant Scooby-Doo, right? Like he, he, well, he designed Scooby-Doo, you know, he didn't invent it, but you know what I mean? Yeah. And he directed Charlotte's Web, which was a good movie. But yeah, I think he's interesting. I've, always, I've read up on him before. He's just a very fascinating guy. Oh, also Jack Kirby, like do do him fighting and killing Nazis in World War II. Like that'd be rad, especially if make... you did like you parallel him with with uh, like you can do interesting stuff paralleling him with Captain America and stuff. So. Well, I always fear that type of thing because we've seen Saving Mr. Banks. So that's true. I always, I always fear where it's like the corp, like a corporation owns basically the person we're talking about. Mm. Yeah, which, which I guess is kind of cool. what how like a Scooby Doo creator biopic would go to. I guess I don't know if well, they own yeah. this guy. I know they don't own this guy. They own Stanley. Yeah, I um. That's why you should probably focus on the World War II stuff. Um, But anyway, Sarah, what was this nominated for? Um, Best Actress. Best Original Screenplay. Best Art Direction. Best Costume Design. And Best Adapted Score. Diana Ross for me. You guys might have liked her. I thought thought she wore some nice outfits and she sang pretty good. It's like Aretha Franklin. Do you know that quote about when they're asking her about all these pop divas and they're like Taylor Swift and she's like, beautiful gowns. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm gonna say I'm gonna say best costume design. Beautiful gowns. Uh I'll agree. Beautiful gowns all around. <laughs> Noah. Oh, you said no, so I thought you were gonna change your vote. Sorry. No, no, no. I'm I'm giving a costume design. Um I'll add a nom for I don't know. Billy D. Williams is good in this. I uh, you know. That's more than I can say about most of the movie. Yeah, I will also say Billy D. Williams for best supporting actor. I thought he was pretty good. Yeah. He gave us a good gift. Uh, he gets the three feet. Billy D. Williams. We love that guy. All right. Please come on the podcast. Yeah, we'd love you. You want him more on your other podcast, I feel like. Yeah. Having him there for an episode of Star Wars Fair, you immediately fit, like throw out whatever you had like on the schedule. I I'll be honest. I think I could talk to him just about like making movies in the 70s on this podcast. I I think I'd get too nervous talking to him actually about Star Wars, though. Yeah, that's fair. You just want to know what we're doing next time? Sure. All right, before I say, I have to put this disclaimer here. Because I know we have listeners who will contact me and be like, you missed something. So, the 45th Academy Awards, there's a film of four nominations and no wins called The Immigrants. And I know Lady Sings the Blues had five nominations and no wins. Ergo, The Immigrants should not qualify for this podcast. However, if you carry over the nomination head from the 44th Academy Awards, which was a nomination for Best Foreign Language Film, it would take it up to five nominations and no ones, which would qualify for the Pat Codpeck podcast, 
regardless if it had those five nominations in the 44th Academy Awards or the 45th Academy Awards. However, I have been outvoted on me saying we should do an episode on this, so we will be skipping The Immigrants, despite having five nominations and no wins. But take it up with text Caleb and Sarah about it if you want to complain. Please do not Don't text me. No, I don't give you permission to text me. Yeah, I don't know how you'd get my number, so please do not text me. What are you talking about? You give me your Instagram and literally hit the end of every episode. It's not texting. All right, don't DM him either. Um, but since we will not be doing a part two, or I guess what I would actually demand we label that episode if we were to do it would be like the 44th and a half Academy Awards. Why don't you just, if you want to do it, just do it yourself. Oh, great. Yeah, we're going to put in an hour of me talking about this film that's three hours long. That <laughs> I that I'll be on. I'll be like, all right. So the immigrants. What do you guys think? And it will just be that long pause that's always there, but it will be the whole episode. Sounds right. good to me. Anyway, so we need to find some non-union actors to come and play me and Sarah. We should do the. Uh, we should do. You know how uh, Kayla, uh, You remember how Joe inserted all of our episodes into like an AI? He should do that, but then put in a prompt that I, he wants it based off the immigrants, 1971. And then we could just put that up instead. And we could see how that turns out. See what the see what the chatbots know about that no. film that yeah. <laughs> I don't consent to using my voice in that way. Well, I hate to tell you this, but there is an AI recording of your voice out there. You've heard it. I don't consent. Well, Joe, I hate to tell you this, but it sounds like Sarah hates you now. If that's what it takes. Anyway. <laughs> you guys want to know what's at the 46th Academy Awards that we'll cover that also has five nominations, no wins. Wow, this keeps getting cut off at five nominations, no wins. Yeah, tell me. Tell us. All right. Tell them. So, just for, drumroll please. It's by a filmmaker that you might have heard of. His name is Georgie Lucas. Yeah, we're going to talk about American Graffiti next time. So... Movie I've never seen, but obviously I've heard about a lot over the years. Because it's always brought up when people talk about Star Wars. Is look at what he did before, you know? So I finally get to open this American Graffiti DVD that has sat on my shelf in its shrink wrap for years. Nice. I've seen the movie, but... I've never seen it, so it'll be a good time. All right, I'm Danny Vincent. Follow me on Letterboxd at Blank Mints. You can listen to my other podcast, Looking for the Ocean, a Pixar Journey, wherever you find all your podcasts. I am Caleb from Caleb from the Real World. You can find me on Instagram and YouTube. Uh, and from there, you can find my litany of other podcasts, Hot Trash Unlimited, Star Wars Therapy, and All New 52, which I do with our editor, Joe. Thanks, Joe. Joe. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, you Joe. can find me on Letterboxd, uh, S-G-K-E-S-S-G-E-E-K-Y. You can find me on Instagram, SGK29ESSGEEKY29. Uh, you can find us, The Snow Club. Oh, I'm on threads too. <laughs> I'm going to make threads happen. Um, you can find us, The Snow Club, on Facebook, The Snow Club, Instagram, Snow Club Podcast, and at Snow Club Pod. That's it. See y'all next time when we talk about American graffiti. Goodbye.